Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By rallying research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research, man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Mascaro is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for joining me again this week on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I have four fantastic guests that I am really looking forward to sharing with you. First up with me this week is going to be one of the all-time great golf writers, a guy who won a Lifetime Achievement Award for journalism from the PGA of America, among several other awards, and that's Ron Syrak. Following Ron, I'm going to be joined by former tour player and now a fantastic golf analyst and broadcaster, and that's Jay Delsing. After Jay, I'll be joined by a guy who's become a wonderful friend of the show over the last few years, a major champion, 1978 PGA champion, and now a great author, and that's John Mahaffey. And then we're going to round out this week's show with a visit from another former tour player, the 1996 Texas Open champion, and now a great instructor as well, and that'll be David Ogren. So we're going to have a lot of fun, folks, over the next 90 minutes or so. And as always, I thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me again tonight. I want to start out tonight by reminding you about our friends at the McLemore, which is a private resort located just south of Chattanooga, high atop Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the United States by Golf Digest. The 18th hole, as a matter of fact, is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Outpost, is now under construction, which will open summer of 2024. The Outpost is another Bill Berg and Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both the course and the hotel have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. you got to see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at McLemore. Go online to McLemore.com to book your stay and play package today. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin Grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability, with their fingerprint technology, creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. 
To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. All right, now back with me is one of the great golf riders of our time, and that's Ron Syrak. Ron is from Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is about 50 miles northwest of my hometown of Pittsburgh, right there on the Pennsylvania-Ohio border. He attended Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he wrote for the Lancaster Independent Press. His first job in golf was filling the pop cooler at Castle Hills Golf Course in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. You probably know Ron's work as a senior writer for Golf Digest and a regular contributor on the Golf Channel. He was also an executive director for Golf World. Prior to all of that, he worked with the Associated Press for 18 years, the first seven as a supervising news editor before becoming deputy sports editor and then a writer. He has authored three books along with P.N. Nielsen and Lynn Marriott entitled Every Shot Must Have a Purpose, The Game Before the Game, and Play Your Best Golf Now. He's also written a biography for young people about Greg Norman. In 2015, Ron received the PGA of America Lifetime Achievement Award in Journalism and the Media Excellence Award from the LPGA. He also received the Lincoln Worden Journalism Award from the Metropolitan Golf Writers Association. And I am very thrilled that I get the privilege of having him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Ron, thanks for coming back on the show. Wow, Chris, that intro, you make me you make me feel as old as I really am. But uh, <laughs> you also make me feel very lucky that I that I was around at a time to 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 see a couple of generations of really special golfers. No doubt you did. We're gonna talk about some of that. Um, but before Ron, I, I was checking out your website, ronsirac.com. The background picture is a golf course that I believe is around east of Massachusetts. I'm familiar with Salt Pond, but I don't didn't know there was a golf course around that area what golf course is that it's not there anymore it's a ghost golf course uh, uh cedar banks links was built in 1925 was there to about 1947 um uh i found a schematic of the golf course and then i had a friend who's a graphic designer get a get a google earth uh image of of what it looks like now and then impose the layout of the golf course uh, uh on that google earth image it, it must have been a spectacular golf course uh from what i've heard uh, Bob Jones played there. Francis Wimet played there. Uh, a spectacular piece of property. You can see where uh, some of the holes are still there. Uh, there, there was a, a par three that uh, went over the neck uh, of an inlet to the salt pond. And the guy who built it was uh, such a purist that he didn't, he didn't build a bridge across the waterway. Uh, he had a raft and a rope and you pulled yourself <laughs> across the water to get to the green. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Ron, it's Open Championship Week. Before we talk about that in Royal Liverpool, how great were the shots we saw from Rory and Robert McIntyre on the last two holes of the Scottish Open? That was a thrilling ending. Yeah, that, that final approach shot by McElroy is just, it just shows you how good he is. I mean, I felt for a long time, and, you know, I was at Royal Liverpool in 2014 when he won there. It was one of the great driving weeks I've ever seen anybody have. And uh, there's no way in my wildest imagination would I think that nine years later we'd still, you know, he'd, he'd have gone nine years without winning a major. Uh, it, it's just phenomenal. I, I'm a big believer that that when Rory McIlroy has his A game, he's the best player in the world. And if there's a weakness in his game, it's that he he doesn't he doesn't know how to win with his B game. You know, he doesn't struggle really well. Uh, we saw Tiger Woods win with his B game a lot. 
And uh, you can see Rory, when things start going bad for him, you can see it in his body language. He gets down on himself. Uh, I really thought that that this whole live situation was going to uh, carry him to uh, new heights this year. Uh, uh, and uh, um, um, maybe maybe we're still going to get there. Maybe he goes back to Liverpool, and this is where he breaks that major drought. I interviewed Maureen Medill on Saturday, and she, of course, is rooting for Rory. But she was struggling with whether she wanted him to win the Scottish Open or not, because obviously she wants him to win the Open Championship, and it's hard to win back-to-back. Can Rory do it? Do you think he can can take that momentum from the Scottish Open and, and get it over to Royal Liverpool? I do, uh, you know, because I, I think he is a momentum golfer. You know, he, he's the kind of guy that when he gets on a run, when he finds that A game, he is uh, uh, an awesome uh, uh, attack player out there. And, uh, um, and he, he, could, he could absolutely do it. Uh, you know, the, the situation going in right now is, is uh, he's, he's going up against, you know, probably six, eight, ten other guys right now who have been playing really steady, consistent, good golf all year. So the, the competition is going to be very tough. So who do you like? Uh, you know, uh, um, you, you look at it and, uh, um, Scotty Scheffler has, has seems to like never not be on the leaderboard, right? I mean, right. That's, that, that feels like for two years now, his name is always there and you see it, uh, um, uh, strokes gained. He's, he's blowing everybody away. He's been a little, he's been a little shaky with the putter, but I think that um British Open greens tend to be uh easier to putt than than the greens in the other three majors because they're not as fast, they're not as contoured. And uh and and Scotty Scotty might be the guy. Uh I'm I'm going with a with a long shot favorite here, which is uh Tommy Fleetwood, who's again somebody who, if you had asked me six, seven years ago, is this guy gonna win a major? I would have said, Oh yeah, two or three. And uh he just hasn't gotten there. Well, I, I love your two picks because those are the two guys I picked, so I'm right with you. Ron, Golf Digest used to do another publication called Golf World. Its last issue was right after Rory won the Open in 2014 at Royal Liverpool. You wrote an article in that edition about Ricky Fowler and his evolution in the game. Earlier that same year, you wrote another article about Ricky and how he didn't want to be remembered as a one-time wonder. Well, here we are nine years later, and Ricky's game seems to have come full circle. Where do you think Ricky is compared to where he was in 2014? Yeah, in 2014, I really thought he was turning a corner. He 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 made that great statement about I don't want to be known as uh, you know some, as just another pretty face out here. He started working with Butch Harmon. It, it it seemed he finished in the top five in all four majors in 2014, and I really thought, okay, we got we're going to get onto something special. And then, um, he went backwards, but he does seem to be getting, getting back into it now. Look, Ricky does absolutely everything right, except win. You know, he's great <laughs> with the fans. He's great with the media. He's great with the sponsors. Uh, he, he does everything to promote the game in an absolute perfect way. Uh, um, it, it, it's one of those things, you know, the intangible in golf is always the confidence factor, you know, uh, um, among the many things that made Tiger Woods special is in his heart of hearts. Uh, he believed he could beat anybody. Uh, and, uh, and I, you know, I think that, um, um, Ricky sometimes doesn't have that belief and, and maybe, maybe he could get there. I think he's still young enough to, um, 
you know, remember Mickelson didn't win a major till he was 34 years old. Uh, uh, Sergio Garcia, I think was 37 when he got his one major. So, uh, um, there's still time for, for Ricky to do some special things. You do such a phenomenal job covering the LPGA. We're a couple of weeks north of the Women's U.S. Open, played out at Pebble Beach this year, won by American Allison Corpus. There was a lot of buildup leading to that tournament, not only because of the magnitude of the event, but also because it was played at Pebble Beach. But to me, it felt like the event way surpassed even the expectations we had going in. What did you think? First off, I've never been that cold in July in my life. <laughs> it was the marine i was there seven days the marine layer came in on monday and it never left it just hung over that golf course and uh uh and living by the water like i do on cape cod i know the difference between 60 degrees when there's sun out and 60 degrees when there's no sun and it was cold there uh but we saw a week-long celebration of women's golf there it started on monday they had a, a past champions dinner they brought in 39 of the past winners of the U.S. Women's Open, and they treated them like royalty. And it was really special to them to see how this event's grown. Uh, they had brought in ProMedica as a presenting sponsor for the tournament and raised the purse to $10 million. Well, they lost that presenting sponsor. ProMedica ran into some, some financial issues. They lost ProMedica, and still they raised the purse to $11 million, and they're going to go to 12 next year. That $2 million went to the winner. Um, uh, all of that was was really uh, uh, a huge step forward for women's golf. And, and I think the most important thing, when we see the PGA of America with the Women's PGA Championship and the USGA with the U.S. Women's Open um, um, elevate the venues that the women are playing, put them on venues where, the, where fans have seen the men play major championships, that really brings fresh eyes to the women's game. You know, people who may not necessarily wa- be watch women's golf regularly are going to tune in to see Pebble Beach, or they're going to tune in to see, gee, I wonder how the women are going to handle Pebble Beach. Gee, I wonder how they'll set Pebble Beach up for the women. It brings fresh eyes to the product. It reaches that 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 casual fan, not the hardcore fan out there. And uh, I, I, I think financially and I think in terms of venue, it was a huge, huge step forward for women's golf. Let's take that a step further, because when you look at the courses they played on, like Pebble, earlier this year at Baltusrol, and then sites like Aaron Hills, Riviera, Inverness, and Oakmont over the next five years. That has to mean a lot to the players to be able to play on venues like that. How much of that impact is going to be felt by more sponsors, more money, more sponsors, and more eyes and ears on what the LPGA is doing? Yeah, not just the sponsors, but corporate entertaining. You know, uh, uh, corporations who aren't necessarily the sponsors, they rent hospitality tents. Uh, and, and that they have that build out and they do their corporate entertaining there. And that, that brings more money into the event. It also brings, a, a, again, a, a newer, fresher, broader, wider audience in, into the women's game. Uh, look, the, the LPGA is playing for over a hundred million dollars this year. Uh, 10 years ago, they were playing for about 40 million dollars. So it's come a long way, but ironically, because of the uh, the live situation, because the PGA Tour created those designated events and poured a whole lot more money in there, created all this bonus money, the women who were playing for one fifth of what the men are playing actually lost ground this year because because the the prize money on the men's side went up so dramatically. But the sense that I'm getting is I think the corporate world is waking up to women's golf and realizing 
there's a huge opportunity for them out there that they can get involved in women's game uh, as a sponsor or as an endorsement partner with players for a fraction of what it costs to get involved in the men's game. And they find out, too, that uh, the women are, uh, are very, very easy to work with because they want the attention. They want the exposure. They, they want that publicity. And uh, they want to do things to, to uh, uh, enhance the, the, uh, the, the buzz around, around women's game. And I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see more corporations come in and get involved with women's golf. So with all this additional money that is flowing into these purses, whether it's on the PGA Tour, it's on the LPGA Tour, we've started to see some things maybe start to reach a tipping point because we saw AT&T pull out of the Byron Nelson. They're going to focus on the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am and put their money there. Are, are we getting to a point where... It's starting to get a little dangerous. We're getting so much money that now all of a sudden we're starting to tap out sponsors and people aren't willing to pay the exorbitant prices because look, I mean, these, these elevated events on the PGA tour, to your point, they're trying to compete or we're trying to compete with live, you know, $20 million purses, guys winning, you know, $4 million. That's a lot to keep up with. And it's a lot to squeeze your sponsors for in an economy that hasn't been always great over the last few years. Is it getting a little dangerous with where we're at? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure it's a tipping point, but I think there's a turning point that, that, that we're into right here. And it, it, it involves not just golf, but all sports. Uh, uh, look, the most valuable uh, commodity in the entertainment world right now is live sports. You know, uh, it, it, it's something that that draws in zillions of eyes. And now because of things like like gambling, like fantasy leagues, stuff like that. Uh, it, it's bringing more and more viewers in and it's that TV revenue that that's driving the salaries and the team sports ultimately drives, you know, the reason why uh, the PGA tour plays for so much more prize money than the LPGA does is TV money. Uh, they, they get way more of that, but we could be getting to a point where there is just a lot of competition for those eyes out there right now. You know, uh, uh, this week, the Scottish Open was on, you know, up against Wimbledon tennis. You know, the, I mean, there, there's so much uh, uh, soccer is becoming a, a, a bigger and bigger sport in the United States. Uh, um, lacrosse was something that didn't even exist when I was in college as, as, as a sport. And uh, there, there's so much more competition for the entertainment dollar and for the entertainment viewer out there that it, it's going to create challenges in, in all sports, I think. Ron, changing gears a little bit, you wrote a piece about 15 or 16 years ago about Bob Dylan allegedly being a golfer. And you said allegedly because no one has seen visual proof that he, in fact, does play the game of golf, although Golf Digest once ranked him as the 63rd best among their top 100 musician golfers. And in that article, you wrote, who else would understand the grand aspirations and pitiful sufferings of the human soul? Better than one who has tested the metal on a golf course. But did you ever get uh, visual uh, evidence on I've Dylan? Ne- I've never gotten visual proof. Uh, uh, he owns a house in Scotland. Uh, and uh, I remember when, when Golf Digest ranked him, whatever, 63rd or whatever it was among musician golfers. I was, I was working for Golf Digest then, and I didn't believe it. I said, you know, you, you got to prove it to me, dude. I'm not, the, you know, I've seen, I've seen Neil Young play golf. I haven't seen Bob Dylan play it. but but. Uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me because, um, uh, and I talked to, uh, uh, Darius Rucker of, uh, of Hootie and the Blowfish about this once. And I said, 
why do so many musicians really like golf so much that, that, that they want to play it? He said, when you live your life on the road and you live your life with all these spectators, a golf course is a retreat that you can go to. You go out and you play 18 holes and you are by yourself. And Bob Dylan's sort of the ultimate loner. So, I mean, in that regard, uh, I could see him loving being on the golf course because he can be out there and, and, and nobody will bother him. But, uh, I find it fascinating when Darius Rucker said that's one of the things that, um, a lot of these celebrities get by, uh, playing golf, that isolation. Ron, going back a little over 20 years ago, you wrote an article about Ben Hogan right after he passed away. And not enough people know about what Mr. Hogan accomplished over his career, including the amazing year he had in 1953, which included five wins in the six tournaments that he played in, including the Masters, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship. And he might have won the Grand Slam had the PGA Championship not been a match play event back then. He couldn't even enter due to his leg injury from his 1949 car accident, playing at match play, all of those holes, all of that time out there was just going to be a little too much for him. But talk about the player Mr. Hogan was. Yeah, you know, uh, um, he had just figured the game out when he had the car crash. He won uh, uh, 1946, uh, 13 tournaments. Then he won seven tournaments, 47, 10 tournaments in 48. He's the only PGA Tour player to have two double-digit win seasons. Uh, uh, and uh, the and the only the only players to have double-digit win seasons out there are Byron Nelson, Sam Snead, Ben Hogan. Uh, you know, uh, in the wonderful world of social media, uh, when Tiger was coming back from uh, one of his many injuries and and uh, 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 people were like sort of passing judgment on him, and somebody said on, on Twitter, uh, gee, uh, um, when Ben Hogan was coming back from his car crash, uh, people didn't beat him up for uh, uh, struggling to work his way back. And I sort of retweeted out, Maybe that's because Hogan won six of the first nine majors he played after the car crash, you know. <laughs> and, and, uh, I mean, I, it, it's, uh, he went from 1946 through 1953 with the car crash in between, in the middle of that 1949. Uh, he played 16 majors and won nine of them. Uh, from 1940 to 1960, he never finished out of the top 10 in the U.S. Open. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, uh, um phenomenally consistent golf uh i i i'm with dan jenkins in th- saying that um uh uh you know the only the only people who've won the us open four times are bobby jones jack nicholas uh, willie anderson and uh and uh, ben hogan uh but in 1942 they didn't play the us open but the usga ran an event called the hail america open which was a fundraiser for war bonds and hogan played that event and won it it was set up, of course, was set up by the USGA. The USGA gave the same medal that you give to win, to, to winning the, that you get for winning the US Open. Uh, and it was played on, on USGA, uh, specs on, on the golf course. And, uh, I'm with Dan Jenkins in saying that, that Hogan really won, is the only person to win the US Open five times. So you talk about, uh, arguing with people on Twitter and I get into Twitter wars with people because I, as I said to you off air, I'm a huge Jack Nicholas fan. And people say that the Tiger is by far and away the greatest golfer ever because Nicholas played against five guys and a bunch of firemen and, and, you know, police officers. And Hogan didn't play against anybody, but two or three players that were great. 
And I, and I, and I take umbrance with that because I go back and I look at the, the players that Nicholas played in the sixties and seventies. And I look at the guys that were ranked 90th and a hundredth and you know, on the money list or whatever. And a lot of those players were great players. I mean, Lanny Watkins was number 100 in the early seventies. I feel like the top 100 players in the world were always as good as the top 100 players in the world right now or in the 2000s. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that uh, in the tag, first off, on the greatest of all time arguments, uh, I'm not a fan of those arguments because I don't know how you, 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 you compare different eras. You know, in my mind, we went from Bob Jones to Ben Hogan to Jack Nicholas to Tiger Woods, you know, and, and I don't know how you separate them out. But, but I feel that number 156, the last person in the field was probably a better player for Tiger Woods than it was for Jack Nicholas. But I'm not sure number 10 in the field was a better player for Tiger Woods than it was for Jack Nicholas. I think if you look, Jack won 18 majors playing against, uh, Gary Player, who won nine, Tom Watson, who won eight, Arnold Palmer, who won seven, Lee Trevino, who won six, throw in a Billy Casper and a Hale Ehrman and a Raywin Floyd and, and a Johnny Miller. Uh, uh, he played against, and I think Trevino is, is a, is a great example of this. He played against guys who knew Jack was the best, but they weren't afraid of him. You know, I, I Tiger, I, I saw Tiger in 2000 psychologically destroy several golfers out there. Uh, you know, I think he got into Sergio's head. I think he got into Ernie Els's head. Ernie Els in 2000 finished second in two majors by a total of the U.S. Open and the British Open by a total of 23 strokes. You know, and Tiger just uh, crushed people that way. But Jack went up against people. Uh, um, there's a, the great Tom Weisskopf quote about Sunday going up against Jack. Weisskopf said, Jack knew he was going to beat you. You knew Jack was going to beat you. And Jack knew that you knew that he was going to beat you, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and this is another thing. And I could be wrong about this, but I, it, my person, I don't, and I've been following Jack since 1962. Uh, I was crushed when he beat my local guy, Arnold Palmer, in a playoff at Oakmont, uh, in 62. Uh, but, uh, I don't think I ever saw Jack Nicholas hit a golf ball out of bounds. Um, and to me, that's the biggest difference between Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas is Jack made so few mistakes on the golf course. He played very, he, Jack only shot 65 when he needed to shoot 65. Otherwise he shoots 70 until you went out of your mind. You know, he just went 70 <laughs> to death until you went out of your mind. And, uh, uh, that was, uh, you know, you look at those 19 second place finishes in majors. If Jack had been a little more aggressive, he could have turned that into, and I always thought, if you had asked me in April of 2008, what are Tiger's final numbers were going to be? I would have said he's going to win a hundred PGA tour events and 25 majors. Well, then there was, there was back surgeries, knee surgeries, uh, uh, uh the scandal, all, all that stuff and, and everything fell apart. But I always thought the advantage that Tiger Woods had is he knew that Jack had 18 majors. He knew what the finish line was, what the goal was. If somebody had tapped Jack Nicholas on the shoulder in 1980 and said, Hey, dude, you need to get to 21 wins in majors, 22 wins in majors. He'd have done it. He'd have figured out how to do it, but he wasn't chasing anybody at that point. Uh, uh, you, you can't, it's not a done deal. Uh, in, in my mind, um, uh, you know, it's, it Hogan. Uh, and, and again, I'll quote, the, I'll quote the late great, uh, Dan Jenkins on this. Uh, I said to him once, 
So are the three best you ever saw, Hogan, Nicholas, and Woods, he said, Hogan was the greatest golfer. Nicholas was the greatest winner. Tagger was the greatest escape artist. <laughs> <laughs> you think of it, the most memorable shots Tagger Woods ever hit are all recovery shots. You know? Right. No, yep. that's genius. Yep. Ron, in February of 98, you wrote an article saying, speaking of Jack Nicholas, that he should be given an exemption to play in the U.S. Open for life. And then that April, he went out and finished sixth in the Masters at age 58, oh, by the way. Talk about why you thought he and Mr. Palmer deserved to play in the Open whenever they wanted to. First off, I, I was at that 98 Masters, and on Sunday, uh, um, Jack's playing with Ernie Els, and we got to number seven, and Jack made about a 15-foot side heel birdie putt to pull within two of the lead, and I looked over at Ernie Els, and Els, at that point, essentially quit playing and became a fan, and the hair on my arm was standing on end. I'm thinking... Holy moly, this guy's going to win this golf tournament. Uh, I, I think that, that what Tiger did an enormous amount for the growth of the game of golf, but what Nicholas and Palmer did is, um, is off the charts. And, and, uh, um, uh, and I, I will say I, uh, I had the great good privilege of, um, uh, when Arnold Palmer went into the Western Pennsylvania Golf Association Hall of Fame, they asked me to MC the dinner. And what I said that night is, if you want to talk about the greatest golfer of all time, there's five or six names that are going to be in the conversation. But if you want to talk about the most important golfer of all time, in my mind, there's only one name, and that's that's Arnold Palmer. And Arnold and Jack came around right as TV was discovering live sports. And, and, and Arnold televised perfectly for TV. He was muscular. He had movie star good looks. Back in that day, he'd smoke that cigarette and flick it to the side. and had that corkscrew finish, everything about Arnold televised well. And then here comes Jack along to challenge the king. And, uh, and uh, you know, for me, being a Western Pennsylvania guy, and I told Nicholas this once, I said, Jack, I'll tell you how hard it was for me to get over the 62, uh, 62 Open at Oakmont when, when you beat Arnold uh, in that playoff is it wasn't until you won the 86 Masters that I was willing to say, all right, this guy's pretty good. <laughs> but and, and and I said, Jack, even worse than the fact that you beat Arnold, you were from Ohio, you know, and, and us Western Pennsylvania guys don't take very well to sports stars from Ohio. But um, Jack and Jack and Arnold, um, uh, the timing was perfect. And they came along and Arnold brought the game out of the private clubs to the masses, to the public. My dad was a steel worker. Started playing golf when he was 35 years old in 1955 because of Arnold. By 1960, every factory in Mill in Western Pennsylvania had a nine hole golf league. And it was because Arnold brought the game, brought the game to the masses. And then Jack came in and, uh, and, and challenged the king. And, and that just created in the sixties, golf was, golf was, uh, uh, had as much buzz as it did in the peak of Taggermania. Ron, you also wrote a book for young adults about Greg Norman. How do you feel about Greg's legacy now versus when you wrote the book? I think running 54 whole tournaments is perfect for him. <laughs> <laughs> he'd have, he'd have about nine majors if they were all 54 whole events. In 1986, he had the Saturday slam. He was the 54 <laughs> hole leader at all four majors that year. Uh, uh you know, uh, it was, uh, I'll say this in all fairness to Greg, there was a period of time in there when uh, we were talking earlier about Scotty Scheffler's name always been on the leaderboard for the last two years. 
there was about a five or six year period when Greg Norman was on the leaderboard at every major. Just he was constantly in it. He didn't. He only won two majors. You ask the casual golf fan who won more majors, Greg Norman or Nick Faldo. A lot of people are going to say Greg Norman, you know, and and Faldo had three times as many majors. Uh, but uh, Greg was and until Rory McIlroy came along, I thought he was the greatest driver of the golf ball I ever saw for hit for hitting it long and straight. Uh, but, you know, this is I covered it in 1994, 95, the first time that they tried to create sort of a, a made for TV, limited field, limited number of events, uh, a tour for just the top players. And I think then they wanted 40 players and, uh, it didn't, uh, didn't get off the ground. And Greg was involved in that. And I always thought that when he got involved in live, part of it was, um, was sour grapes from, from that time that he was, he wanted his mulligan at, uh, at taking on the PGA tour. So where do you think this whole thing with the PIF and the PGA Tour, whether it's a, a merger, a partnership, whatever you want to call it, where do you think this thing ends up? Well, Chris, I think the, the one thing we know for sure is there's a whole lot more that we, do, that we don't know than we do know. You know, we don't know what this is going to look like next year. I mean, I've heard, um, I've heard that Live Golf's going to exist next year. I mean, and uh, I've heard that, uh, that it's not going to exist. Will we have a DP World Tour, a PGA Tour, and Live Golf, all three out there? If so, how do they um, uh, peacefully coexist with each other? Uh, we really don't know. Uh, we don't know legally where this is all going to go. Look, Live Golf sued the PGA Tour saying uh, they filed an antitrust suit against them saying you have an illegal monopoly on golf. Well, how does Live Tour say that and then not say, okay, the merger of DP World Tour, the PGA Tour, and Live Golf seems to me an even bigger monopoly, you know? Right. And I never understood the argument that the PGA Tour was a monopoly. You know what the PGA Tour is? It's the major leagues, you know? <laughs> the guys who are playing AAA and AA baseball aren't in AAA and AA because there's a monopoly held by Major League Baseball. They're there because they're not good enough to make it to the, to, to the, uh, to the top tour. So uh, I, I've always felt that, that that's what the PGA Tour was. The, the, the gathering place for the best talent in, in the world in golf. And, uh, th- there was no, there was no monopoly there, but, but we don't know where this is going to go. I think regulatory agencies are far from being done with this. I think that, uh, uh, uh Congress is far from being done with this. And I wouldn't be surprised if some entity brings another antitrust suit, uh, uh against whatever this new entity. And we don't even know what it's going to be called. But this new merger of these three things, somebody may bring it, and it could be one of the one of the PGA Tour players uh, uh, who who felt betrayed by uh, by Commissioner Monahan and and the PGA Tour by staying loyal to the PGA Tour. Somebody like that may decide that they're going to file an antitrust suit against that. So I I think it's it, we're a long way from knowing what it's going to look like, and we're a long way from knowing whether it's going to happen. People ask the question, is there a way back for the live tour players to play back on the PGA tour? And, and I, and I sort of get a chuckle out of that now, especially because what's the PGA tour going to find them and suspend them for doing exactly what the PGA tour did, which is taking the money from the PIF. It seems, it seems far fetched to me that you can suspend or find players for doing exactly what you just did. Do you think that? That uh, that's going to happen? Do you think that uh, there's going to be a way back for those players? Yeah, I think that Commissioner Monahan and a couple of people on the board of directors of the, of the PGA Tour have put themselves into very awkward positions 
because a lot of the arguments that they were making a year ago, they've now gone a full 180 on, you know. So um, um, I do think there's going to be a way back. At the same time, they have to figure out how they 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 have to figure out how that pathway back doesn't annoy the the the, the Rory McIlroys and the John Roms and the Scotty Schefflers and the Max Homas and all those guys, Patrick Cantlay, all the guys who stayed loyal to the PGA Tour. And now, you know, a lot of those guys are feeling like they were played. So, uh, how do you, how, how do you compensate them? How do you, how do you heal their wounds? And how do you, you know, you can't bring these other guys back who, who, who left the tour without them paying something. And this is another thing too. They're live contracts. We don't know a lot about, are they prorated? Um, um, were they guaranteed? Does Dustin Johnson, was he guaranteed three years worth of money in there? Or if Liv goes away, does he have to give some of that back? It, uh, you know, again, there's, there's a lot we don't know. And, and I sort of figured that one of the reasons that, that this got settled the way it got settled, and I never thought it was going to get into a courtroom, never, because I thought the Liv people didn't want to open their books. But it's looking a whole lot like neither side wanted to open their books to public scrutiny. Yeah, well, to that end, doesn't that seem suspicious to you? Like, what are you hiding? Well, yeah, you know, and, uh, uh, and it could be for the, I mean, I, I honestly think that, that, um, the PGA tour, look, PGA tour this year is going to have a revenue stream of about $1.5 billion. Live Golf has, uh, or Live, the, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia is worth about $670 billion and it's going to be about $700 billion by 2030. So, so as a financial, uh, uh, battle, PGA tour was no way they were going to win it. And I think that when they started creating the designated events and, and raising some of the bonus money and raising some of the purses for those designated events that they tapped themselves out. Um, they had a, they had about a $300 million war chest that was in there. They spent 75 million of that 300 million, uh, to get through COVID. You know, uh, uh, there were no spectators. Uh, uh, they lost some, uh, they had to give some TV money and sponsorship money back. Uh, they had to test, uh, you know, I mean, they spent, they spent millions and millions of dollars, uh, on COVID testing. And, and so they spent a lot of that money. And I think that they were just tapped out. What surprised me when I heard, and I was on the 17th hole of my golf course when a guy I'm playing with said, Hey, live in the PGA tour just merged. And I was like blown away. Um, I thought there were three issues here. The financial issue, which the PGA Tour had no chance of winning. The moral issue, which is really an individual choice thing. Some people have different feelings about doing business with Saudi Arabia than others. To me, the deciding issue was going to be, is it a compelling entertainment product? Is it good competition, good golf out there? I thought the PGA Tour was winning that battle. They got off to a great start this year. There were so many good tournaments early in the year, so much great golf. And, and there was no buzz. Nobody was watching live. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody was paying any attention to it. But I do think what happened is that the, um, that live just financially bled the PGA tour dry. Ron, one more before I let you go and switching gears. We're talking major league baseball, minor league baseball a minute ago for baseball fans not familiar with Cape Cod. Talk about what it's like to go watch the Cape Cod league. Cape Cod League is, uh, celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Uh, it, it, it's eight teams out here. 
And these are the top college players in the country. In, in fact, uh, my, my local team, the Orleans Firebirds, uh, um, uh, got off to a slow start because they had eight of their players were playing in the College World Series and they didn't get here for the beginning of the season. So these are really, really, um, uh, top, the top players uh, in the college game. Uh, what Major League Baseball and Major League Scouts love about the Cape Cod League is it's a wood bat league. So they come here, they play, they play with wooden bats. You really get a sense of, of, of what they, uh, what they can do. There's, uh, they, they find, uh, host families for the kids to come in and they stay with those families, uh, during the season, about a 66 game season, I believe it is. And, uh, uh, they find them jobs. Uh, uh, they, my grandson was here, uh, for, for the last week and he went every morning, uh, he went, uh, for a two hour, uh, kids camp in which, uh, players from the Orleans Firebirds and some of their coaches would come and, and, uh, take the kids through, uh, uh, through learning baseball skills, going th- through drills. So a- a- as a fan event, uh, as you know, it's, it's, it's wood bat, it's amateur golf, it's, or amateur golf, amateur baseball, it's, uh, free, uh, and, and it's, it's incredibly intimate. When the games are over, kids go onto the field and, and get players autographs and stuff. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we've had, uh, you know, Thurman Munson, Frank Thomas, Carlton Fisk, uh, uh, uh Nomar Garcia Parra. You can go through a gazillion names of, uh, big name players, uh, uh, in the major leagues. Uh, the number I think right now is about 22% of major league baseball played on the Cape Cod League at least one season. Um, it's a fun thing to watch. Fantastic. Ron, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they get a copy of all your books and then follow you on your website and on social media. Well, you can go, if you go to vision54.com, which is the website that, uh, Pia Nielsen and Lynn Marriott, my co-authors, uh, have, it's, it, it, it's their ideas. And, uh, I've written three books for them on, uh, on, on the mental side of golf. And they, uh, uh, all, all, all Pia and Lynn did was, uh, uh, coach Annika Sorenstam to 72 wins and 10 major championships. So. <laughs> they, they have a they have a pretty good they have a pretty good track record there. But go to you go to go to uh, Vision fifty four uh, uh, the number five four dot com and and uh, and you'll find a link to to all the books there. Well, Ron, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime soon. Chris, thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for all you do for the game. It's terrific. I, I appreciate it. Take care, Ron. All the best yep. you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Bye bye. See you, Ron. That is the great Ron Syrak, folks. S-I-R-A-K is the spelling of his last name. RonSyrak.com is his website, at Ron Syrak on Twitter. The guy is just phenomenal. He is a walking encyclopedia for so many sports, not just a game of golf, and just a treasure. When you read his stuff, you're just going to fall in love with his style and the things that he writes about. And uh, as you heard, a wonderful man right on top of that. So hopefully we get the privilege of catching up again with uh, Ron real soon. And again, the website that he pointed out, to, if you want to go out and get the copy of the books, vision54.com. Okay, coming up next is going to be Jay Delsing. Jay is just one of the most wonderful, positive, upbeat people that we have right now in broadcasting. He used to be a great player in college and out on the PGA Tour. But before I get to Jay, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. 
an average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX Full Face Wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arco's and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arco's Caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Jay Delsing. Jay, like another great friend of the show, Rob Strano, is from St. Louis, Missouri. Jay was a tremendous junior golf player. He reached the quarterfinals of the U.S. Junior Championship in 1978. He played his college golf out at UCLA along with Corey Pavin, Steve Pate, Tom Pernice Jr., and Duffy Waldorf. Jay led it all four years from 1979 to 1983, and he was a two-time All-American. He helped UCLA win back-to-back Pac-10 titles in 1982 and 83 and he had seven career college victories. And his 13 career top 10 finishes and 55 career rounds are both the most in UCLA history. He graduated with his degree in economics. He earned his tour card in 1984. He won twice on what was then the Buy.com Tour at the 2001 Fort Smith Classic and the 2002 Omaha Classic. Plus, he shared the title at the 1993 Jerry Ford Invitational Celebrity Pro-Am with Donnie Hammond and Jim Thorpe. On the PGA Tour, he finished second at the 1993 New England Classic and the 1995 FedEx St. Jude Classic. He also had three third-place finishes, 11 top fives, and 30 top tens. You've seen or heard Jay broadcasting tournaments for Fox Sports and the PGA Tour Radio on Sirius XM. He has his own radio show and podcast called Golf with Jay Delsing, and I couldn't be more honored than to have him with me here tonight on Next on the Tee. Hey, Jay, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, d- totally different. Uh, well, a different world, actually, back then, Chris, as we know, and a uh, much um, uh, simpler world. I um, One of the thrills, you mentioned the Gerald Ford tournament. I remember when I was out in Vail getting ready for one of my rounds, and I was just kind of loosening up and hitting a few balls, and I turned around, and Yogi Berra and Whitey Ford are standing right behind me. And I said, hey, guys, what's going on? And um, they said, oh, my gosh, we didn't mean to bother you while you were practicing. And I just laughed. You know, I'm like, bother me while I'm practicing. you got to be kidding me. Two Hall of Famers, two Yankee greats. And they said, we just wanted to see how Jim and Roseanne are. That was my mom and dad. And it was just a real thrill. You know, just really, really cool, Chris. Yeah, I got to believe as a kid, 
you were kid of the day every time you had career day at school. It's hard to top your dad. <laughs> well, you know, my dad grew up on a dairy farm and is a very humble guy, and he never once came to any. Uh, we didn't have career days back then, but we I was the fourth of five kids. You know, we we just kind of I was thrown in the back of the car and we just went, you know, and um, I, I there wasn't all that. There was much hoopla. And my dad was he just kind of fit in with the landscape, didn't talk too much about his golf. I mean, his a, a baseball career. But the game of golf really re, um, united he and I. And, and um, I'm really grateful because it's through the game that I really got to spend some high quality time with my dad at a time in my life that was really important. And Jay, like I mentioned in your intro, you had a great junior golf career. You got to the quarterfinals in the U.S. Junior Championship, and I believe it took extra holes to eliminate you. But what was it like for you being a young player advancing up through a tournament like that? <laughs> I had no clue what I was doing. I, I was in Delaware all by myself. I was staying with a host family that was very kind to me. I was playing a golf course that was way too narrow for my capabilities off the tee, but I was a really good putter and I liked to compete and I'd never seen green so pure and so fast. And so I was holding a lot of putts and I, I didn't really know what I was doing, Chris. I mean, one of, one of the guys that uh, this, this family um, hosted two of us. And unfortunately the other fellow that I stayed with didn't make the match play. And they came out to watch me play and they said, you're putting too fast. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, you're not taking enough time over your putter. And I said, but I'm making every one of them. And they said, <laughs> I know, but it looks like you're going too fast. You know, so Chris, I didn't, I didn't have any really formal training. I grew up playing with my mom's clubs. I'm just a kid with a stick and a ball, man. And I just loved it to try to figure it out. And yeah, somehow I made it through the quarterfinals and Don Herter and I had a great match and he beat me in 21 holes and he went on to win the championship. But it was, um, it was a thrill. And, 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 you know, this game, is so good. I on my show all the time I talk about it as a societal powerhouse, Chris, because it there's no other game of the major sports anywhere that do anything like golf does for the needy, for the sick, for children, for hospitals. I had Barbara Nicholas on my show, and they're talking about four hospitals, I think, that have the Nicholas name on them around the country in different cities in Miami and Ohio and things like that. And and I mean, just that Nicholas family alone, Chris, I'd love to know what sort of dollars that family is responsible for. I mean, for creating, you know, for charities. It's it's staggering, man. So, Jay, I got to ask you, how does a rising junior player from St. Louis, Missouri, end up playing his college golf out at UCLA? Well, we didn't have the Internet. <laughs> we didn't have <laughs> cell phones. I just, you know, what I did was um, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. And so what I did was I put together basically resume and I sent it out to over 250 schools. I did it all myself, did all that mailing and, and all that stuff. I bought a book and got the addresses and, and sent them out. And because I needed a scholarship to, to continue going forward, Chris, and it was it was really that simple. And um, I learned, then learned that, you know, as a as a college recruit, you're allowed eight visits. And so, hell. I hadn't been anywhere other than Delaware and maybe a couple other places in Illinois. So I took all eight of my trips and went to Houston and uh, Wake Forest and um, Arizona's and USC and UCLA, you know, and, and wound up with UCLA. I had a, a, a poster of Bill Walton in my basement 
And I just absolutely loved all the sport and Bill Walton and 88 wins in a row and all that great stuff that the UCLA thing uh, offered. And and the a degree from UCLA was going to by far and away outweigh any of the other uh, schools that I would have gone to. So that was uh, a pretty easy choice for me. I love sports. I'm a junkie. And I, and I, and in the athletic department at UCLA, just walking around there, you know, Chris, there's badasses all over the place. You know, here I am, this little <laughs> skinny, nerdy golfer. And I'm like, hey, that's, you know, there's uh, Will Chamberlain and there's uh, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. And there's, you know, just one guy after another, Henny Easley and Steve Bono, Jay Schrader, you know, just, they're just really awesome for, for a kid from North County. It was a blast. Yeah, and then you get to go out there and you're playing alongside Corey Pavin, Steve Pate, Tom Pernice Jr., Duffy Waldorf, and then, of course, your longtime friend, Caddy, and now co-host John Perlis. I mean, what was it like getting to play golf and being a part of a team alongside those guys? Well, it was intimidating at first. You know, I didn't really have a complete set of clubs, and I was uh, uh, had quite a temper in those days. And just, But I loved to compete, and I just – you know, I was just in there trying to learn. And when I was a senior in high school, Corey was uh, the college player of the year. I think he had won eight times. And, you know, so all I could think of, Chris, was I need to play with this dude as much as I can. You know, and we couldn't have been more opposite. Corey's a strategist. He's a point A to point B player. And I was long as, I mean, I was super long, but crazy, crazy wild. So it, it just, it, you know, it, it's it's one of those things, but you either get better or you don't survive. You know, and I was I was pretty determined and, and um, a fish out of water, no question, being in, in Westwood. But gosh, I just um, things went went well for me and broke well for me. And, and, you know, somehow I fell in love with this game and this game is a provider and it continues to provide. And it's it's a uniter of people. It's a it's a networker of people. It's a giver to to those in need. And, and somehow I got swept up in this wonderful world and, and uh, man, I'm, I'm still involved and I, I couldn't be more grateful, man. Jay, I read that one of your biggest thrills was getting to play three days in a row with Arnold Palmer. And you started off the first day with Mr. Palmer. He gave you the honors on the first tee and you stepped up and you piped one 350 yards down the middle. Boy, the adrenaline really had to be pumping. Oh, I didn't know if I was supposed to genuflect in front of Arnold or if I was supposed to I didn't know what to do. I was so in awe of playing with him, and I was so excited. And he, and he said, young man, you know, why don't you go ahead and hit first? And I'm like, oh, boy. You know, I couldn't wait to get this this round on. And it, and it was it was just a thrill. I mean, the word icon doesn't suffice with someone like Mr. Palmer. And, and what he did for the game and listening to your prior interview with Ron and things like that, just, just fabulous. But you sit there and think about what, Arnold Palmer did, and then Jack Nicholas, and then you have, you know, greats like Tom Weiskopf, uh, Tom Weis, Tom Watson, Tom Weiskopf. You've got then Tiger Woods comes along, and you're, you're you know, to be just be in that mix from a a little kid that grew up the way that I did. Man, I I, I couldn't be more grateful. It's real, really a thrill. What was it like walking inside the ropes with him? Oh man, I was like. I wanted to walk as slowly as I could, Chris, and it was hard <laughs> because I was so geeked up, you know. But I was—I just wanted to—I just didn't want it to end, you know. And when each round ended, he's like, "Do you want to go in and have a drink?" I'm like, "I want to follow you home," you know. <laughs> I just want to do whatever you're going to do. I, I'll remember a story, Chris. I'm a 
I'm 18 years old. I'm standing on the putting green at Bel Air Country Club and trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing there in, in this place with movie stars walking around and all of these people that are recognizable from TV. And I get a tap on my shoulder. And in this really recognizable accent, I hear, young man, would you care to play nine holes with me? And I turn around and it's damn James Bond, Sean Connery. Wow. And I almost died. Now, Chris, this is 1979. I mean, Sean Connery is it. And I looked at him and I said, oh, uh, well, yeah, I would love to play with you, Mr. Connery. But I said, I'm not a member. I'm really not even a caddy. I, I'm like, and he goes, no, no. He goes, I've looked after it, you know, and we're all set. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, let's go. And I'll never forget, Chris, we're walking up in the night. And this was later in the evening and it was in the wintertime. Or, or, or in, the, in the fall time. And so the days weren't very long. And it is pitch black, man. I mean, I can barely see the bag that's on my shoulder. And um, I said, are we going to play the back nine? <laughs> like, man, I can't even see my ball. So I don't know what you're talking about. But again, it was one of those experiences that I was so far out kicking my coverage. I just didn't want it to end. You also shot a final round 61 at the FedEx St. Jude Classic back in 1993, which was the course record until another great friend of the show, Bob Estes, tied it in 2001. But what was that that day like for you as the birdies just kept on coming? Yeah, you know what? As an athlete and as a competitor, you just don't get enough of those. Or at least I didn't get enough of those. But, Chris, the the play really, really slowed down. The, the games, the fairway seemed wide which I didn't never experienced very often in my life. The whole seemed like it was just going to get in the way. And it was just one of those days that you just dream of. You know, it was just, you, you know, when uh, I hit driver on holes that I hadn't previously hit driver on because I just looked like I could just fit it in there. And, um, and, and ironically, I made about the longest putts I had all day and missed a lot of short, uh, not short, but intermediate, you know, real makeable. When you're shooting 10 under par, hell, you feel like you're anytime you get a wedge in your hand, you know, it's makeable. So uh, it was just one of those special, special days. And I'll never forget this, Chris. You know, my dad was a nervous watcher when he was out playing, and I gave him good reason to watch. I hit it in the water and hit it all over the place often. But I'll never forget getting in the car. And I think I started in, I don't know, 50th place or something. I wound up finishing like fourth or fifth or sixth or something. And I get in the car, and I'm just, you know, heart still racing and just trying to un unpack what I just did. And my dad says to me, son, how did you miss that putt on number 12? <laughs> and I looked at my dad, you know, and, because he's an athlete. He knows what the hell is going on. And I said, dad, I just shot 10 under par. How, how can we even start this conversation off by a, a putt that I missed? I mean, how about all the ones that went in? He's like, yeah, I know, but I, it just seemed like you were going to make them all that day. So, you know, it was just kind of a funny story. And also in 93, you win the Jerry Ford Invitational along with Donnie Hammond and, and Jim Thorpe. What was it like playing in former President Ford's tournament out there in Vail, Colorado? Well, Tom Place handled our media for the PGA Tour, and he was a super kind uh, uh, person, and his wife, Jean, were just great. And they invited me. To play and it, it was just really, uh, it was special. I had never been to Vail before, obviously, and to get to go there, I think I probably went five or 10 years, you know, until they stopped doing the tournament, but it's just a thrill. It, it almost made me feel, you know, like I had maybe arrived on the PJ tour that I had made it, you know, because I was, 
I was constantly hanging around the guys that were playing all the time, the guys that were were household names to me and guys I looked up to and, you know, guys like Andy North and and some of the the guys who were older than me that helped me and 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 took a liking to me and tried to uh, to to you know help me out were were all part of those things and it was really really special and Gerald Ford just a wonderful human being. Jay, it's Open Championship Week. You played in the Open back in 1995. That year, it was played at the Oak Horse in St Andrews. That's the year John Daly won it. But what do you remember about being a part of that tournament? Oh, I just love the venues. I love that. I love the Scottish golf. If I if I had to do it over again, I think I would have loved to to play over there much, much more. Maybe, you know, I was fortunate enough, Chris. I got my card right out of college. And so I I didn't really have to worry too much about mini tours and things like that. But that style of golf over there is very appealing. There's lots of options and lots of different ways to to get your ball around a golf course. And for me, Hitting the ball low was never really a problem, even though I'm a tall person. And and when I got over and played in the Scottish Open in 95 before the week before the British, we played Carnoustie, which, as you know, is a beast, just a beast. And I I had a nice tournament there as well. So, and and, and the, I, I, it was just appealing to me to be able to have a bunch of different options with shots. You know, if you didn't want to get it up in the air, you could you, over there because of the hardness and the run out of their fairways. Chris, you could knock something down. You could knock a five iron down and hit it 190 yards, you know, back in the day. And, 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 you know, you don't do that over in the States because everything is so wet and so water. And so I, I was kind of, you know, to sucking it all in as much as I could, but I so much enjoyed the environment. I, I like the, the linksy style of golf and, and, um, I can't wait to watch what, what, uh, this British Open brings. It's, um, it looks like it's going to be rainy and, the wind doesn't look like it's going to be up. The score should be low. Uh, I think that favors an American. I'm a little pro red, white, blue, if you're going to be honest. But typically speaking, when the, you play a really super linksy course, course like um, uh, Liverpool, they, that that favors more of, you know, the Euros and uh, Terrell Hatton or uh, 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 Shane Lowry or some of the guys that have played there so many times. So, I love majors. I love, I wish I was still, I wish I had played in more when I was, when I was a, a player. I, I wish we had more of them to watch. It's just, uh, it's great TV and I just love it. Jay, one more before I let you go. And you were inducted into the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. What was it like being honored like that in your hometown? Breathtaking, really breathtaking. My, my family, my daughters were there and, um, it's such an honor, something that I never really expected, you know, golf is a, a blimp on the on the screen here in St. Louis with, with baseball overshadowing everything. And um yeah, I was just really super honored, uh Kristen. And um, you know, I gotta say in this time of golf, it's such a tumultuous time and such a oh boy, so many unanswered questions and such poor leadership as far as I'm concerned for someone who was extremely proud to say that I, I was somehow able to become a life member of the PGA Tour. There's a lot of things that need to be answered, a lot of questions, a lot of things, a lot of things coming up that um, our Commissioner Monahan has his hands full with, and I'm really, really interested to see how we move forward, man. So to that end, I got to ask you, people talk about, is there a way back for the live players on the PGA Tour? My question is, is there a way back to the PGA Tour for Jay Monahan? Uh No, 
in my opinion, I think this is going to be fatal. I think he is, he's, there's, there's too many different personalities in those rooms, Chris, that, that, and it, it, and, 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 and look at, it, especially today, these guys don't trust easily. And I was reading Xander Shopley's comments and he said, you know, I don't trust easily. And, and now I really, really don't want to believe anything that he says. And I mean, it's fair enough. I mean, Chris, what would have been wrong with our commissioners saying, all right, folks, I've got some really important news and share it with the players first. Clearly, big mistake. I don't know who advised Jay Monahan, but clearly one of the all-time public relations gaffes in our country. But what would have been wrong with saying to the players, listen, guys, here's what we did. We've ended the, the litigation. We have, we and, and for two reasons, and here's what's really interesting, Chris. What Saudis did not want to open their books. We know that for sure. But they could have dragged this thing out for 10 and 20 years and never run out of money. We were in a terrible position there. But I can tell you what, the PJ Tour didn't want to open their books either for whatever reason, and I don't know why. But this merger, which was a horrible choice of words, was better than them exposing whatever we didn't want exposed out of our books. Because if we would have stayed the course, they would have outspent us and our secrets would have come out. There's no question in my mind. And whatever it was, I don't, we'll probably never know what it is. It's worse off than saying that we merged with the Saudis. But what I don't understand is why Jay didn't say, listen, we've ended the litigation for several reasons. Here's why. We spent $50 million already. There's no end in sight short term. And we do not have or desire to have the wherewithal to run this thing out. Now, guys, because... Um, the the public fund would like to dump several billion dollars into the game of golf. We think it's crucially important for us to reconsider our position and we need to rethink this and why not help shape how some of that money is spent and how we can do some good for the overall game, for more of society, more humanity, and go that way with it, Chris. What Jay did makes no sense. Jay's a smart guy. We've got some smart guys in Jacksonville. This doesn't come close to meeting that sort of level of intellect and thought and and advice. It's a it's a it's 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 just an awful awful dropping of the ball by so many people. Completely agree, Jay. Before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing. Listen to your show and find you online and on social media. Chris, first of all, you're the best. You are the coolest dude. I so appreciate you inviting me on the show again. I'll come on anytime you want to talk golf because I just love it. Uh, my show is, uh, I've got a couple. My show is called Golf with Jay Delsing. We're expanding from one hour to two hours uh, starting August 6th. I also have a, a, a national podcast with Danny McLaughlin. He's a four-time Emmy award-winning um, uh, broadcaster called Beyond the Fairways with an S. And you can find those wherever. Uh, you find your podcast right under you because you get all of the all the notoriety and you get all of the downloads and I love listening to your show and I love the way you're formatted and um, on social media it's just at Jay Delsing and I'm not much of a social media guy to be honest with you but um, there's something kind of cool Chris you need to look at it's a clubface-golf.com it's over a, it's a social media network over in the UK and it's only golf and it's super super cool and it is one of these things bud that has none of the trash 
it doesn't have it, it, it it's just it's just absolutely super um super cool so it's called www.clubface-golf.com and you can get on there and you can set up golf games you can find out about golf clubs you can you can just chat golf you can do whatever you want but check it out i think you'd really enjoy it and it's not none of the trolls and none of that other junk that's on social media i'm definitely going to check that out thank you for that tip jay and I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of the show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope I get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. Anytime, buddy. Keep doing all the great stuff, and thank you for your kindness. Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Jay. Take care, my friend. All the best in your family. We'll catch up soon. Bye, Chris. See you, Jay. That is the great Jay Delsing, folks, and it just don't come better. You want to talk about a guy filled with positivity and energy. Boy, you look no further than Jay Delsing. What a great career. Obviously a great junior career at the beginning. Did great things at college at UCLA. Goes out on the PGA Tour. Continues to play really, really well. And then from a broadcasting perspective, whether it's on Fox Sports or PGA Tour Radio or his own show, Golf with Jay Delsing, it's just, he's just outstanding. He's just a wonderful human being and a great player. And I'm very thrilled that uh, I got an opportunity to spend a little more time with him tonight. And I hope we get the privilege of doing it again very soon. Okay, coming up next is going to be John Mahaffey. John, as you know, the 1978 PGA champion, 1986 players champion, a wonderful player, a wonderful broadcaster, now a great writer. Before I get to John, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R dot com. 2under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip-on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too, so spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit scone.com and use code NXT on T20, so next on T20, at checkout for 20% off. That's Skoni.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. Now back in next on the tee with me is 1978 PGA champion and 1986 players champion John Mahaffey. John has become a wonderful friend over the last few years. It's been great getting to hear his stories and insights. He was a tremendous player both as an amateur in college and as a pro. He played his college golf at the University of Houston where he was named a first-team All-American in 1969 and 70. John won the individual title at the 1970 National Championship, and he helped the Cougars to back-to-back national championships in 1969 and 70. 
He earned his degree in psychology and was inducted into their Athletics Hall of Honor in 1976. John turned pro in 71, and he won 10 times on the PGA Tour, including that 1978 PGA Championship, when he came from seven strokes back with 14 holes to play to win in a playoff. When he won the 86 Players Championship, he did so with a score of 13 under par, besting Larry Myers by a stroke and another great friend of this show, Tim Simpson, by five. He won once on the Champions Tour and was a member of the 1979 Ryder Cup team. John was inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame in 1983. He's written several wonderful books, starting with Hogan's Boy, A Journey in Golf, plus a mystery novel series you can get out there. The first one was Shafted and then followed up with Unfinished Business. You can find them out on johnmahaffeyauthor.com or out on Amazon. And I'm very excited that I get to have John back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, John, how are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm doing great. How you doing, Chris? Oh, fantastic, sir. I got I to tell you something. You got to tell Jay Delsing to get more energetic. This is kind of kind of <laughs> sad. You know, he just, he's so low-key. I mean, I'm just kind of like, what, where's, when's he going to get excited about something? <laughs> that was fabulous. What a yeah. guy, huh? Yeah, he's awesome. I love Jay. Yeah. John, so here we are. It's Open Championship Week. You played in a number of Opens. How different is playing an Open Championship from any other golf tournament that you played in? Well, it's totally different. I think Jake touched on it quite a bit. We play everything pretty much uh, watered down over here. We don't have, although we're getting where we have more and more firm fairways and firm greens, but you play more on the ground here. You keep the ball lower there and play run-up shots. Uh, you have to be conscious of uh, hidden bunkers in the fairway. So you really have to map out the golf courses, be strategic in how you play over there. In fact, uh, some courses like where was it? The Tiger, was it uh, St. Andrews that he? He played out of the opposite fairway more times than he did out of the uh, actual fairway, <laughs> you know, but that was by design. That's it, it just opened up uh, certain hole locations. So, you know, uh, I think uh, local knowledge plays a big part over there. John, beyond the history of the tournament and it being a major, I think for fans here in the States, one of the most fun things for us about watching an open championship is you guys as players could encounter all four seasons during the course of year round. I mean, it might start out, dreary and cold and by the time you get to 18 you've had your rain gear on and off several times layers on and off throughout the round have you gone through something like that over there <laughs> i certainly did i in fact the last uh professional golf tournament i played was the senior open at muirfield and uh i really didn't want to go because i hadn't played very much and uh fellows that i represented in sparity built a golf course uh renaissance where they had uh, just had the tournament Rory won uh, right across from uh, right next door to Muirfield. So they asked me to come play and I shot a blistering 91 the first round and uh, was not in the lead by anywhere, anywhere. <laughs> Is near. that right? Uh, oh yeah, I did. It was, it was horrendous, <laughs> but I remember I have never been that cold. The wind blew si- uh, the blew the rain sideways and all this wow. kind of stuff. And, and actually uh, I had some hip issues at the time and I went through and didn't play the second round because I'm not so sure could have broken 200 in the second <laughs> round. It was, it was brutal, but yes. Uh, and, but I think that's all part of it over there. I think that the, the ability to adjust to that, that's where Tom Watson, uh, and Nicholas and guys that could pick the ball and guys that hit the ball solid all the time had an advantage. Uh, and watch, I mean, Nicholas, Nicholas never really tried to play the ball low. Nicholas hit it so solid and went through the wind. Watson had a lot of that in it. And, uh, and you need a terrific short game over there. Second, th- another thing that people don't realize, 
the greens are so slow over there compared to what they over here, uh, week in and week out, much less a major. So I think that uh, that's something that takes getting used to very, you know, you, you're just not used to hitting putts that hard. And speaking of not used to, the tournament used to play Wednesday through Saturday, right? Didn't it? Didn't back in the, in the mid seventies, it was a start on a Wednesday, ending on a Saturday. Uh, in the eighteen seventies, no, <laughs> I, uh, uh, I it may have, yeah, I think I, I don't know when I played over there. I think we ended on Sunday. I'm I'm pretty sure seventy five. <laughs> did we? I'm not. That was the first one I played when Watson won. Yeah, in seventy five, uh, you finished tenth in the Open. Yeah, it was it was Wednesday to Saturday. That, okay, uh, yeah, I remember. I had a chance to do the playoff for ABC with. Uh, as a walking commentator when Tom played right? against, yeah, yeah, played against Jack Newton. It was great. Uh, Tom and our best friend have been forever. Uh, just a tremendous competitor and, uh, you know, what a, what a great guy and what a great career, obviously. Did you play the week prior to the open championship or did you typically like to take that week off and get over there and get acclimated to the time change and the weather and all that sort of stuff? Actually, what we did is Tom, Tom and uh, Hubert Green and I went over there together. We rented a house uh, at the tournament, around the tournament area. But we went a week early. Uh, Wimbledon was uh, played then, uh, probably to, still today, right? Or yep. Is it? Yep. yep. Uh, so uh, anyway, my uncle was uh, lived in London at the time. He worked for ESSO, which is Exxon now, and uh, internationally and stuff like that. And he had uh, all kinds of tickets and all that kind of stuff. So we actually went to Wimbledon. I got to see... Uh, Jimmy Connors play Roscoe Tanner, which I thought was incredible. Uh, wow. How, how quick, uh, Jimmy Connors could return a serve that went over at about 300 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was cool. But we, we all had, a, we had a blast over there and, uh, <laughs> playing with Tom, with Tom and we, we, they wouldn't let us on the golf course at, uh, at Carnoustie. We got there so early that we wouldn't play to, and I can't remember the name of the golf course. Tom does, but. Uh, he'd never played Lynx golf and we played about five or six holes. He goes, I hate this. This is not, I can't, I, I hate this. I don't even want to be here. You know, that kind of stuff. And what, and you know, what a change <laughs> when he finally figured out how to do it. He did it very well. <laughs> yeah. John, you played the majority of your career during the time of the big three. Nicholas was at the height of his powers in the seventies, still going strong, obviously in the early part of the eighties players out there. Still winning majors in the mid seventies. Mr. Palmer was a force in the game. And then you had all the other guys, Trevino and Casper, Weiskopf, Norman, Sevy, all those guys played throughout the, the majority of your career. What was it like for you being right there in the fray with all of those great players? That's where I wanted to be, Chris. I mean, I, I worked my rear end off to get there. Uh, I wish I'd have been more attentive with, with certain things throughout my career. And might have been a little bit better, but no, that's exactly where I wanted to play. I love playing with those guys, especially in the last round. That was, uh, that's how you learn stuff. That's how you see if your golf game's really any good, if it measures up with these guys. And, uh, I was fortunate enough that it did several times. And, uh, but I, 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 I loved playing with, with every one of those guys. Uh, you learn something from all of them, uh, course management, not only, uh, ball striking, but, but course management from Nicholas, uh, Course management also from Trevino, how to play different shots. Uh, it was it, it, always a learning, learning, uh, situation in each one of those cases. How much can you, was that during the practice rounds that you're learning from them? Cause I, I imagine no, you, I you got to stay inside yourself. 
No? Well, well, if you're not paying attention, I mean, if I'm going to learn something, I want to learn from the best, right? Yep. And uh, I played a lot of practice rounds. Trevino helped me uh, tremendously. Hogan helped me as well. But Trevino on the on the, on the the tour was great uh, with the short game and, and a lot of other things. Taught me how to fade it, different way, different things that really made my career better. Um, but I like to see how a guy reacted under pressure. I think that's and I think you can learn from that. I don't think you can stick your head in the sand when that happens. I think you you, you watch how a true professional handle, handles those situations. So speaking of handling pressure, what was it like? Because, again, you're you're coming down the stretch a lot of times facing head-to-head with one of these great players. How did you stay within yourself, not get caught up in the moment, not get caught up in the fear of, hey, I'm I'm coming down the stretch against Lee Trevino or Jack Nicholas or whoever it was? How did you, how'd you focus on you and stay calm in a moment when you're not only trying to win a golf tournament, but you're trying to beat a legend? Well, that's it. I was trying to beat them, right? So, and, uh, I, I, head to head, I beat, uh, actually I wasn't head to head with Trevino the first time I beat him. He played in front of me at the Hope one year. And, uh, I birdied the last hole at Indian Wells to beat him by a shot. Uh, and he was sitting behind the green watching, taking a bite out of this apple and he never finished the bite because <laughs> he said nobody, he was talking to Bob Hope. He said, nobody ever reads this putt right. And I knocked it and he said, except one guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the wrong guy, right? And then the next time was at uh, a golf course where I probably never should have won, and that's congressional because it was so long. People said, you know, I didn't hit it far enough to win there. And uh, when we moved uh, the Kemper Open from Charlotte to, to uh, congressional, I won there the first year. And I played head-to-head with Trevino the last round. I'll never forget it because we were uh, we were practicing and. He was talking about going out with his Marine buddies the night before, and he just got back in, you know, and boy, they had a heck of a town and painted the town red and all this kind of stuff, you know, didn't know if he could even get it airborne. And uh, so we get on the first team, he stripes it, and I'm going, a nice story there. (laughs) (laughs) That was for the crowd. I didn't believe a word of it, but we, uh, I I played a really good round of golf. Uh, We played head to head, tied, I think, through 10, and then uh, I played a really good back nine, birdied 18 to win by through three so uh it was great though i loved it and you know and i think he liked to see see that in a way too he didn't like to get beaten obviously but to see somebody that he'd helped that that had really worked on it and he, and he knew that uh that, that he helped me be, be a better shot maker you know and then they weren't afraid to use it under pressure i think that uh, that gives you kind of a sense of pride John, changing gears just a little bit. I want to get your reaction to this whole PIF PGA PGA Tour. I don't even want to call it a merger, partnership, whatever. Well, How'd you feel when you heard the news? It's a kerfuffle. You know what a kerfuffle <laughs> is, right? <laughs> it is. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with all this kind of stuff. But you know, uh, now that I'm an author, okay, and I write mystery novels, right? Right. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this from a from a totally different standpoint in a way of but maybe a storyline. I'm looking at this Randall Stevenson, right? Who retired, retired, uh, AT&T CEO, and he resigns from the, the policy board, uh, over the, the PIF, uh, deal shortly before he was going to retire. Why? I'm kind of wondering what, what's the deal behind this? And, you know, and, and I'm watching all this other stuff unfold where all that, this questionable behavior and this, these hidden agendas. 
and backroom deals made without the knowledge of any of the policy board members. That's crazy. You know, and then yeah. I kind of thought, you know, what a great storyline. <laughs> so and I'm serious. <laughs> and I'm thinking about this because I've got this series, Nemesis series, I call it, which is about uh-huh. a family, a progressive book that goes through the generational stuff. And uh, I just finished the fourth book, Exoneration, and it's uh, it's in pre-edit. And the third book, uh, Dead Quiet, is in final editing, which is great. And I thought, you know, I want to branch out from this. So I've got a I got a new book, uh, a new kind of book. <laughs> I'll put it that way. It's still part of the Nemesis series, but it's uh, it's about a lawyer named Maxwell Silver, attorney of law, and the case of the un of the outmaneuvered magistrate. And uh, so I thought that that book's already in process. And I thought, well, you know what? I like I think a second book kind of based on some of this stuff that I see happening around the tour might not be a bad idea, especially since I'm talking about a lawyer law case in cases, you know? Yeah. So it's got me, got me thinking about stuff. The only problem is right now, I can't think of a title that I'd like for this, you know, the case of the what, you know, so maybe, (laughs) maybe you can come up with it or maybe some of your (laughs) listeners can come up with it. I'm open, (laughs) open for any suggestions because, uh, uh, I, 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 I love what I'm doing right now. I'm exactly where I need to be in my life, where I am with who I'm with. Um, uh, and you know, uh, I, I write a little bit every day. Uh, I miss playing golf a lot, but I also include a lot of golf in the books and it, people are missing the boat if they don't read these. I mean, they're going to think, Oh, a professional golfer writing a mystery novel. That's stupid. That's crazy. What's he doing? Actually, these books have gotten better and better. Of course, I'm prejudiced, but. Uh, they involved a lot, uh, involve a lot of things that are happening in today's world as well. So it's sort of a, they're, they're made to entertain and, uh, there's karma and I'm a big believer in karma. So I got to get, uh, a winner from you. Who do you like this week in the open? Cam Smith. Really? Back to back? Yep. He wow. just won, didn't he? Yep. I'm on the live tour. Right. Yep. And uh, is there anybody putts any better than that guy? No. True. <laughs> and he just found out and he just has better, more confidence with his driver now than he says he ever had. So, see, I still keep up with this stuff a little bit, Chris. I don't just, <laughs> you know, I just don't write all day long. I kind of keep up with it. It, no it was doubt you a do. very important part of my life. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> John, before I let you go, let our listeners know where can they get copies of your books and then how can they follow you online or on social media? Well, uh, John Mahaffey, Arthur dot com is where you can get them and also through uh amazon i think you said earlier and that's the best way to get in touch with me my website is is i think uh i got a lady that's done a, a wonderful job on that and uh pick up a couple of books see what you think uh, it's a great summer read you know if you're on the beach or whatever and uh give it a shot 100 percent, john you're the best my friend i can't thank you enough for all your support and, and what you've meant to me over the last few years. Having you as part of the show has been not only a privilege and a huge thrill, but uh, something that has meant a lot to me on, on a personal side. I listen to you. I've gone back and watched a lot of the broadcasts that you were a part of with our good friend, Keith Hirschland. And uh, it's you, you've sort of quietly mentored me, and I can't thank you enough for that. <laughs> well, thank you. I just want to let you know something. I was thinking about doing a podcast, and I heard yours. And I said, ain't no way. I can't top, oh, can't top this guy. That's not true. That's <laughs> that not is true. true. <laughs> There you go. 
Well, I appreciate you, John. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to next time. Hopefully that's very soon. I agree. Thanks, Chris. See you, John. All right. Bye. That is the great John Mahaffey, folks. And again, the website, johnmahaffeygolf.com is where you can go out and get his books. They are a fun read, and I'm already looking forward to installments number three and four, Dead Quiet and Exoneration on the way. So that's fantastic stuff. And, and the first couple of books, Shafted was uh, the introduction that we got to, to this mystery novel uh, series. And then Unfinished Business was was a topper on top of that. So those both are a really fun read. And then, like I say, looking forward to numbers three and four. And then John Mahaffey, just for his general golf knowledge, being a great human being. And that's just send this guy over the top. He's just one of my favorite people on the planet. And uh, having him on the show, uh, this is the fifth time. And I promise you, I hope number six is right around the corner. Up next with me is going to be 1996 Texas Open champion David Ogren. Before I get to David, I want to remind you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Power and precision. Adele Golf's SMS and SMS Pro irons offer the ultimate in iron adjustability. Featuring the revolutionary swing match weighting technology, precisely dial in each iron to your swing by moving the heaviest weight to its optimal position for maximum performance. Learn more about them by going to AdeleGolf.com. And folks, do you sway in your off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried squares? Try the new Speed Bolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. Okay, now next on the tee with me is former PGA Tour pro David Ogren. Let me remind you about David's background. He's from Waukegan, Illinois, which is about 35 miles north of Chicago. Played his college golf at Texas A&M, where he was a four-year letterman. He won the individual title at the 1976 All-American JUCO Freshman Tournament and the 1979 Harvey Penick Intercollegiate Tournament. He was named an All-American in 1978 and 79. He graduated with his degree in economics. David played on the PGA Tour from 1983 to 2000. Played on the Champions Tour as well for a couple of seasons in 2008 and 9. He won the 1996 Texas Open by defeating Jay Haas by one and Tiger Woods by two. He also won a couple of times out on the South American Tour. Over the course of his PGA Tour career, he had 32 top 10 finishes and 86 top 25s. After playing on tour, he's been the director of instruction at some courses around the states of Texas and Wyoming. He was also the director of instruction at Top Gun of San Antonio. He now runs his own golf school, the David Ogren Golf Academy in New Brunsfeld, Texas, just outside of San Antonio. And I'm thrilled I get to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. 
Hey, David, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Chris. Am I coming in loud and clear, I hope? You certainly are. I appreciate you very much, David. Well, I am absolutely flabbergasted. I had no idea John Mahaffey was writing books. Uh, John um, is one of those guys that very few people know how good a golfer he was, how good a person he is, and what he's overcome to still be here and be happy and be productive. He's really somebody that helped me a lot like uh, Trevino helped him. Is that right? How did he help you out? Well, I mean, just uh, he was a friendly face always. He was always willing to talk. Um, I enjoyed our times together when, you know, you just end up in the same place at the same time. And um, uh, gosh, uh, John Mahaffey is one of those guys that I I, I wish I, I I knew more of or got to spend more time with. But, um, you know, that story is really cool about uh, um, um, his writing the book. And it's the case of the golf kerfuffle, John. (laughs) That's what the title of the book is. (laughs) That's a good call, David. I like that. Good good call out of you. David, I want to start off. I got to get your thoughts. I mean, San Antonio, Texas, how are you dealing with the unrelenting heat right now? Well, a couple of years ago, I had the foresight to lease um a little uh industrial space <clears throat> right next to the David Ogren Golf Academy. And when I leased it I got a um an installation company to spray the foam on the walls and got a couple splitter units. And uh so when it gets this hot, I do my lessons inside on Trackman. Um and um it's a it's a storage unit kind of so the inside temperature is like eighty two, eighty three, uh but the outside temperature uh index was probably closer to 110 today and it was miserable out on the range i can i can hear my grass drying up and cracking <laughs> don't you can so david as a guy who played for about 25 years between the pga tour and the champions tour how do you feel about all this swirling around the pif and the pga tour and this partnership or whatever you want to call it <clears throat> all right so my sentiments are almost going to exactly echo John Mahaffey. It's a kerfuffle. I have no idea what's happening. And then uh, the Senate hearings came up last week, and some of the stuff I heard in the Senate hearings, it sounded to me like the real housewives of Hanna Vita <laughs> or something, where, I mean, uh, you know, backroom deals and offering them teams. And the dude wants a membership to Augusta National. Now we get right down to the brass sack, what he really wanted in this deal, right? Or, or, you know, that's the rumors, right? Yeah. I have no idea, but the best answer I've heard, the best explanation I've heard, I heard today, John Rahm's interview. He gave a clear, lucid, brilliant explanation of, uh, of a position of somebody like he has. And uh, if you can find that track, um, go find it. I heard it on PGA Tour Radio, and I just thought Rom handled it handled it beautifully. They talk about the live players. You know, how would they come back and, and get get back to be a part of the PGA Tour? My question, David, is Jay Monahan. How does Jay Monahan come back to all of this? 
All right. Um, great question. And, and the only way you can answer this question is what, what would be my call? How would I handle it? And I would handle it uh, this way. The guys that left, they broke one of the mainstay rules of the PGA Tour, basically the conflicting event clause in our agreement with the PGA Tour. And they have to pay some sort of penalty for every tournament they played conflicting event that they didn't get a release for. Right? Okay. I don't think they can come back scot free. Yeah. However, that... however, um, I think uh, I, I think next year I would um, not in, not include them as a member of the PJ Tour, but I would not preclude them from getting um, sponsors exemptions. Okay. So so if Hawaii wanted to invite. DJ and Cam and Phil, you know, uh, LA wanted to do the same. I would have no objection to those guys now becoming basically unrestricted um, players as far as getting um, uh, sponsors exemptions and stuff up to whatever rules are currently in place on the tour for getting sponsors exemptions. And if they play their way back exempt, they're back exempt. I like it. I mean, if, 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 um, if Phil wants to, well, Phil's going to go to the, you know, and Phil's got, Phil's 50, so he goes to the Champions Tour, uh, whatever. But like if DJ wants to come back, um, you know, he's played how many tournaments? There should probably be a $50,000 ding for every tournament that he played where he didn't get a release. Something like that. Makes sense. I like it. David, it's Open Championship Week, and I, as I was looking back through your record, I didn't see that you played in an Open. Why not? Because I played in the Hardy's Classic or the Quad Cities Classic or whatever it was when it was um, here, John Deere Classic. I don't know if I ever actually played in a John Deere Classic. They might have changed names. But I stayed home, and I played the uh, PJ Tournament here. Um, I was under the um, um, operation that... Um, I wanted to use that week to have a good week and uh, gain some money when the bigger fish were out of off doing their thing. So I, I spent all those years in Quad Cities playing and, and had an okay record. I, I wasn't great. I wasn't terrible. David, looking back over the course of your career, I, I looked at 1983. You finished tight for 13th in the U.S. Open that year. It was played at Oakmont. You were in the thick of it with Two of my, you know, one of my guests earlier tonight, right before you, John Mahaffey, you guys were right there after the second round and he had a share of the league. You were a few strokes back. Larry Nelson would go on to win that year over Tom Watson. But what, what was it like for you being in the hunt at the U.S. Open on one of the most difficult U.S. Open venue courses at Oakmont? All right. I'm going to absolutely plead. I was young and dumb and had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I shot 69. Right? I remember shooting 69 in the second round and going from, I had some sort of mediocre first round, then 69. And all of a sudden I'm in a good place. And it's like, wow. And then uh, the one round I played with Calvin Pete when Calvin was playing really good, forgot who else I played with, but man, Oakmont was difficult. 
And that year, I had a wooden driver. I had two wedges. I had an orange golf ball. And it was Balada. And I finished whatever I finished at the U.S. Open. And, um, you know, it was a, diff- a totally different thing. I was young and dumb and stupid. I do remember who I stayed with. I stayed with the Fitzpatrick family right up the street from um, the club. So I remember that part. Uh, <laughs> Oakmont, Oakmont was fabulous. But what helped me was it was my second U.S. Open. I played the, my first U.S. Open was Inverness in 1979 when Hale Irwin won. So I'd already had a, a U.S. Open experience as an amateur. Um, and, you know, it's really funny. Again, I was young and dumb, had no idea what I was doing. But now when you see amateurs making major championships, you go, wow, that's special. Or how difficult was that? And I'm going, I did that. Was it that difficult <laughs> for me? I don't know. <laughs> Tell me about the greens at Oakmont, right? They're legendary. What was it like putting at Oakmont? Um, well, the, the fastest greens I putted on uh, up to that point, uh, the first and 10th hole and 12th hole, those greens can't backwards uh, from the fairway. They just follow the slope of the fairway, which was really uh, interesting. The second green, which had been re- has been rebuilt a couple times since that U.S. Open, they put the pin in the same place every day because it was the only place on the green the ball would stop. So um, it was it was pretty fascinating. I think I kept it out of the church pews. Um, yeah, number nine we played as a par five. We didn't play it as a par four. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, Number 12, we, we only played it at like 540, which was plenty, thank you. And, uh, yeah, it was just a fantastic uh, experience. And the, the course is just brutal. It just, it just smacks you. 14 years later, 1997, you finished tied for 10th in the U.S. Open. That year was played at Congressional. You're two back of Lehman going into the third round. Still right there, only five back going into the final round. That's the year Ernie Els would go on to win. What do you remember about being back in the mix at a U.S. Open 14 years later? <laughs> Backstory probably never been told. Um, Tom and I roomed uh, that week. We split a house over at Avenel, right, you know, caddy corner from Congressional. And so it's like 11, uh, 11 o'clock at night, and the phone rings. It's my brother-in-law in Colorado who got his time zones backwards. (laughs) Wake Tom up. Tom answered the phone. So the back story is, my brother-in-law calls the house, old school, no cell phones, right, in 97, and wakes us all up. He got his time zones backwards. And so um, he takes the blame for costing lame in the open. (laughs) What I I do remember, honestly, uh, 17, um, which was um, the long downhill par four that year, uh, I had about a six-footer for par. And the electricity in the crowd was just amazing. I mean, you're just standing there over a six-footer, and it, you, every nerve's on fire, and you hit the putt. It didn't go in. And then at 18, I hit this great five iron. Uh, 18 played. It's now number 10 goes the other way. 18 played back to the clubhouse. And I hit a great five iron in there about oh, 18 feet. 
And I know I two putt and I get back into the masters, which was the important part. And I had this 18 foot straight enter and I lagged this thing with all the touch in my world. And I hit it two and a half feet past the hole. Oh no. And then I touched that one and it hit the back of the hole so hard. I put a dent in it and went in. And um, (laughs) then I sat down and watched Tom come in. Switching gears a little bit, David. Earlier this year, you posted on Twitter that you tried to copy Jack Nicholas's swing. Did you ever tell Jack that? Um, I don't know if I've ever told Jack that. Uh, I I better get cracking here because I do have one thing I need to do with Jack. I got a 1963 copy of my 55 ways to lower your golf score with Jack Nicholas, uh, who um, and illustrated by Jay Ravelli. I've got it on my nightstand. I got to get it in an envelope and send it to him and get him to sign it before he goes on and joins Arnie. Um, so, uh, I never really told him that, but what else would a, uh, you know, kind of a heavy set blonde kid do, uh, growing up in the sixties and seventies other than imitate Jack? There you go. And speaking of him, you put out a quote a while back, uh, that said from Jack. Ask yourself how many shots you would have saved if you always developed a strategy before you hit. Always played within your capabilities. Never lost your temper and never got down on yourself. Wouldn't we all be so much better off if we followed that quote every time we went out to play the game of golf? Well, in some aspects, Chris, those of us who... um get a handle on that really don't mind people who don't get a handle on that is that right we got to beat somebody (laughs) Um, but um playing with jack and i probably played uh five times with jack i played four times or so with tiger um you know and i played a bunch of times with lee trevino and some of the other guys right and um they're, they're, they're a different breed, but playing with Jack, you could tell that he never on the golf course, at least on a tournament, hit an indifferent shot. Uh, something that, you know, wasn't well thought out. The only thing, the only time I think I saw that crack is when he got stuck in the bunker at St. Andrews the one time. Right. Right. Yep. I, I, I think if he had to do that over again, he probably sits up at night thinking about that going, if I had to do that over again, I'd get out in one and carry on. Yep. David, along those same lines, we often hear the phrase, you know, play within yourself. How do you teach your students to play within themselves? Oh, great question. I don't know if um, I actually use that phrase or teach that to my students as I learned it. Um, but I do teach them. You, you got to know what you do. You got to know what you're capable of. But since I teach so many developing golfers, I'm always asking them to look for a reach goal. So I'm actually trying and most of my younger students to get them go beyond themselves to find out what they can do next. So I'm a little bit in the business of we haven't discovered what within yourself really means. So how do you? Yeah, no, that's good. But I, I want to take that a step further. How how do you teach them to reach? How do you know what you're capable of? And then to reach a little bit further, dig down a little bit deeper, as they say, how do you know what that is? How do you know when you got there? That's a great question. 
So there's a kind of this, this catchy phrase that some of the smarty pants, um, teachers use is why guess when you can measure. Okay. And it has to do with technology, right? Why guess when you can measure? So, uh, you know, we, 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 we get on like TrackMan, for example, and I use the long drive game in TrackMan to teach driving. And so they go through the game and they get it out there 250. And I ask them the question, what do you think you got to do to get it to 270? And let them come up with the answer. Now, when they get the answer right, oh, I need about four more miles an hour club at speed. I go, great. Now, how do we do that? Yeah. And then it gets them thinking. Some of these, some of the developing golfers are skinny as a plucked chicken, <laughs> right? So you know that they have to get bigger, faster, stronger. And, and that's where a really good trainer comes in. Some of them are already big and fast and strong. And that's where technique comes in. And so that's the art of being the teacher coach. Is that, you know, this person needs to hear this, this person needs to hear that, which is also kind of why I have this, I have these uh, frameworks or this outline of what I'm doing, but everybody is so unique and different that you got to tailor the lessons and the instruction and the coaching to each player. And David, when you were playing out on tour and coming up as a junior player, college player, I mean, we didn't have track men. Like you mentioned, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have track men. We didn't measure people's club head speeds and miles per hour. We didn't have any of that sort of stuff. It was, as Hal Sutton likes to say when he comes on the show, it was all digging it out of the dirt. How do you transition from the, the player and the way that you were taught the game? And now with all of this technology and everything that we're watching on track men and smash factor and all of that sort of thing. Knowing what, you know, what that stuff means versus, you know, looking back to when you were playing and you guys were out there on the driving range digging it out of the dirt. Well, <clears throat> I still believe, um, with all of the data that we have, and I, I, I wish we could set up this experiment, get, uh, you know, like a 30, 12 year old and 15 of them train in the studio with track man and they just show up at tournaments and the other 15, they play 300 rounds of golf a year and uh, their coach just kind of goes with them and caddies and just kind of talks about the day. I would love to see who at 22 would be better. Yeah, me too. It's a social experiment. Every guy that I know of my era learned to play golf by playing golf. Jimmy Walker tells a story that he learned to play in this course down here called Northcliffe, which no longer exists. And he learned to play golf by playing 36, 45 holes a day. Um, and his dad starts going round and around and around playing golf. There was no balls to be hit. They just played golf. That's how I learned to play golf. I had a couple of years in Chicago where I posted 300 rounds on my handicap card. Wow. Not posting it in the computer, by the way, boys and girls, on a handicap card. I had a handicap guy at our club that hand figured out handicap. <laughs> you know, I could get, tw- I could get 20 rounds in, 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 uh, in about 15 days. So my handicap changed like, like every day. David, we talked at the top about the, the heat there in, in San Antonio and throughout the state of Texas. 
Golf in Texas is different. I think, you know, when, when we think about playing in different parts of the country, you know, the, the game to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's different playing in Texas than it is in Michigan, than it is in California, than it is in Florida. How do you keep, when you were out on tour, what adjustments did you make in your game as you were traveling around the different parts of the country? Oh, another good question. Uh, when I first got to Texas, I saw a quote, or my, I might have even seen it before I got to Texas, that golf is the second most important sport in the state of Texas. A distant second, but still <laughs> second. Okay? Because yeah. nothing beats football in this state. Right. Um, it was it is really interesting uh, because I I did not have a lot of success in Florida. Don't know why. Um, the only course I had any success in Florida was Doral. Um, and again, I don't know why it was Doral, but I never really played good at the Honda. I never really played good at Innisbrook. I never really played good at TPC uh, or, or or Bay Hill. I, I, I don't know why. Um, but Texas, the edges of golf in Texas are just primitive, rough. It's a... It's not a jungle out there. It's a desert out there, but it's it's not a friendly desert. You go out to you go out to play out in Phoenix and stuff, and you miss the miss the green grass. And the desert kind of has sometimes this rake look to it, like it's been groomed. They don't do any of that around here in Texas. Um, and uh, my putting green that I have right now is in great shape, but in the last ten days, it has changed colors every day just because of the heat and the cycle of the water and then the cycle of the fertilizing and everything. I mean, it, it changes every day drastically. I don't remember golf changing every day that drastically up at home in, in Illinois at, at my home courses, Bonnie Brook and Glen Flora. Those courses stay pretty much the same. So uh, golf in Texas just changes dramatically. Uh, I make fun of the high school golfers because they're out here taking lessons from me and said, Gosh, it's hot. And they go, yeah, you're going to be waiting for some of this that first match next spring when it's 35 and drizzling and blowing 20 and you got 17 layers of clothes on. <laughs> right. So how do you adjust? How do you adjust to the different conditions? Were you were you changing clubs, changing balls? Was was there something in your equipment that you were changing as no. you were going to the different regions of the country? No, I just played golf. I I, I literally just played golf. Um, I have a theory, if you would, that about 80% of all golf shots you hit are ordinary. Mm. Okay. So yeah. you stand up on a par four hole with nothing, no outstanding feature to it. It's the same tee shot as any other par four with no outstanding feature to it. You step up to a four footer straight in. I don't care if it's bent or Poana or Bermuda or ryegrass or past Palum, it's a four-footer. You're going to hit it the same way. I don't care if the green's fast or slow. It's a four-footer. You're going to hit it the same way. So there's these all these shots that are, these these 80% of the shots you hit are ordinary. That's what you practice on the practice tee. You, you cover all of the shots that you're going to see most of the time. 165-yard, six-iron off of a tee to a par three-hole. Okay? Then the other 20% are 
are all of the variable factors in golf. And the only way that you get any good at that is to have a wide variety of golf experience. So uh, that's why the AJGA kids that travel the country and play some in Florida and play some in Carolina and then and come to the Jackie Burke, for example, here in Texas, and then might qualify for the U.S. Junior, end up in Oregon. Those kids that are doing that, and then they go to college and do the same thing, now they end up being miles ahead of somebody who doesn't get out of their region when it comes to, say, the Nationwide Tour. So um, you don't really adjust. You just keep playing golf, and you learn on the fly because uh, when you first first time you go to florida you don't even know what adjustments you have to make david when you look back at your junior career and as you were coming up and into college who had the most profound impact on you my junior career yeah when you're coming up as a kid and and then you're getting ready to go play college golf who had the most impact on you um the honest answer is dad I mean, wrong with that answer? No, it 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 has to be the answer because my dad was a steelworker, member of the United Steelworkers um, Union. Uh, the whole smash went on strike a couple times. The whole smash, straight up union guy, of uh, you know, uh, Catholic union guy. So you know where my 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 historical background comes from, and um, he, I never wanted for anything. I always got to go to the tournament. I found out the most money he ever made in one year is $27,500. Wow. Right? Yeah. So there's a hero right there. Agreed. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, I got to play in three uh, junior orange bowls down at Biltmore. That was a lot of fun. That's where I met. Hal Sutton. That's where I met Blaine McAllister. That's where I met David Abel. That's where I met the Anton brothers. That's where I met uh, Kim Swan from Bermuda, who ended up sending me one of his students, Oliver Betchart, to be my student. And now I've got this international student who just played in Guernsey, for crying out loud. And um, uh, those are the kind of things that my dad uh, made happen is I got to start networking with all these guys really young. David, one more before I let you go, and, and you mentioned Chicago a little bit ago. I know you're a big Cubs fan, but a kind of a tough season for the Cubs. What's, uh, what's your thought for them for the rest of the year? If they have another series with the Mets, I hope they beat the snot out of them. <laughs> I do, too. Um, the, the Cubs are perplexing um, from an organizational standpoint. Um, I'm a big baseball fan and it comes down to three things that I can see for the Cubs pitching, pitching and pitching. And, uh, God, I, Marcus Stroman is a good pitcher and Kyle Hendricks is still amazing and baffling. And Justin Steele's had a good year and, uh, Jamison Tyon goes and shuts out the Yankees, you know, and, 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 and you see all this and then, yeah, I look in the box score, eight runs, seven runs, nine runs, seven runs. And I'm going, how do they do that? How do they give up that many runs? I don't know. But, um, you know, we'll see. 
David, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they follow you online and over social media. And if they're going to be in San Antonio, come get a lesson from you. Absolutely. Uh, I'm on, um, I'm on, um, Twitter, D Ogren. I'm on, um, Ogren golf is my, uh, Instagram handle. I'm on the new threads, of course. Now, same thing. Uh, I'm always on Facebook. Um, I got my, of course, my profile and my, uh, and my business page. And, uh, my website is davidogrengolfacademy.com. Um, it's not anything special like John Mahaffey's website where I'm going to order a book tonight. But, um, you know, it just, uh, that's the information. And my driving range is open to the public. Um, I, commit to good balls and grass as often as I can. And I've already told you my putting green's good. So, yeah. Well, David, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime soon. Thanks. And, hey, where are you stacking up on the uh, podcast uh, money list right now? (laughs) I think we're somewhere in the top five. I'd like to think we're solidly in the top five. Well, good on you, man. Uh, I appreciate the shout-outs every Sunday. And uh, continued good luck to you. And um, um, I was, uh, I had a, a pick, and uh, I picked Rory to win the British Open. Ah, okay. Do you think he can win back to back? I think that's tough to do. Well, he also has already won at Hoy Lake, right? Right. Back in 14. Yep. So, uh, and I don't know what the big hubbub is about the new 17th hole because I don't remember the old 17th hole. <laughs> Right. David, thank you so much. You're fantastic, my friend. Stay safe. All the best you and your family. We'll catch up soon. You too. See you, David. Bye. That is the great David Ogren, folks. At D Ogren. You can find him on social media. Ogren Golf. He said over on uh on Instagram at D Ogren on Twitter. David com is the website. And go check him out on Facebook as well. A wonderful guy, a lot of fun, and a and a guy that's got a wealth of experience, right? You go back to his days. And college and then, and then right through into the PGA tour, a guy that was right in the mix a bunch of times, uh, in the majors and not, you know, you know, when we talked about where he, where he finished 32 top 10 finishes, 86 top 25s. Yeah. That's a guy that was in the mix a lot in the late seventies, eighties and early part of the nineties. David's a good guy and he's a great teacher. If you're anywhere near the San Antonio area, go to the driving range, go see him, get a playing lesson and I'll get him back on the show as soon as I can. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again go out to Ron Syrak, Jay Delsing, John Mahaffey, and David Ogren for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, will be back, as will former tour player turned great broadcaster, Jim Gallagher Jr. Then I'll be joined by Lisa O'Hurley, wife of John O'Hurley, who you may remember as Jay Peterman on the show Seinfeld. Lisa is the founder and CEO of her own apparel company, so looking forward to hearing about that story and so many more when she's a part of the show. And then we'll round it out with a return visit from another top instructor, Shane LeBaron. So it's going to be a really fun show. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. Folks, you can find the show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audioboom, Player.fm, and on Good Pods, and my thanks to the folks over there at Good Pods for making this show one of their recommended podcasts 
Go out and download their free app and stream your favorite podcast right there on whatever your favorite device is. And most of all, my thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.